It's the Victorian Variety Show. Eight. He who excites the greatest amount of laughter in a given time, either by his pen, his pencil, his tongue, or his grimaces and buffoonery, is considered the reigning favorite pro temp. He is greeted with the loudest plaudits, and what is of still more importance to him, he receives the greatest pecuniary reward. Nine. Indeed, laughter is generally thought to be so natural, so cheerful, so convivial, so exhilarating, nay, even so healthy, that the monitorial proverb of laugh and grow fat has become as familiar in our mouths as household words. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that generally don't get as much attention as, perhaps, they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. Although some of the topics that I look at are considered dark by many, for example, I've done a number of episodes on how the Victorians dealt with death and their funeral customs, I also occasionally bring levity into my discussions, partly because I think it can help us better cope with difficult or depressing subjects, but sometimes it's actually unintentional because I'm a fan of humor in general and have a natural tendency to see humor in places in which others don't. And as it turns out, so were the Victorians, even though you may have gotten the opposite impression from more conventional representations of Victorian life. Or if you've ever heard about the time Queen Victoria allegedly uttered, we are not amused in response to a risque joke that was told in her presence. Or even if you didn't know the context in which it was supposedly uttered, you may be familiar with the statement itself because it's pretty famous. I heard it a few weeks ago on an episode of the season of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel that just ended. So, I've decided it's time we take a look at what I consider an important topic, whether or not it's generally considered a quote-unquote serious one, Victorian era humor. My name is Marissa, and the excerpt I just read was taken from an 1875 book by George Vasey called The Philosophy of Laughter and Smiling, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, along with all of the other sources I consulted in putting this episode together. Looking through this book, you might get the impression that Vasey wasn't exactly a fan of laughter. For example, he begins by addressing its quote-unquote pecuniary expense, noting that while in previous eras, laughter was generally considered a luxury affordable only by a king able to pay a so-called fool or jester to entertain him at court, by the late 19th century, quote, an immense majority of the inhabitants of most civilized countries, end quote, were expending what he considered large sums of money in the name of amusement. In later chapters, Basie takes on topics such as the quote-unquote injurious effects of laughter on infants, 
the moral character of those who enjoy a good laugh, and even, quote, the extremely horrible and agonizing condition to which a human being can be reduced by systematic tickling, end quote, which caused me to nod my head in agreement when I read it. I mean, I can listen to witty jokes until the cows come home, but don't try to tickle me. Although Vasey seems to have been in the minority as far as his views on laughter in his time, I do appreciate the fact that someone tried to analyze laughter critically to show that, as Vasey states in his preface, quote, that the subject of laughter is no laughing matter, end quote. In Actually, We Are Amused, How the Victorians Helped to Shape Britain's Unique Sense of Humor, Bob Nicholson tells us that despite stereotypes of Victorians being prim and proper, Victorians generally considered laughter to be an quote-unquote essential part of one's mental and physical health. The phrase, laugh and grow fat, that appeared in the excerpt from Vasey's book that I read a few minutes ago, was actually a popular proverb in the 18th and 19th centuries, which, in the words of a 19th century journalist cited by Nicholson, was a wish, quote, to rebuke the evil effects upon the physical systems engendered in the persons of those whose lives are made up of fretfulness, of melancholy, and of sour-faced bigotry, end quote. Joke books could be purchased at many booksellers, and jokes were considered so crucial to Victorian-era table talk that some joke books seem to have existed solely for the purpose of providing ideas for witty repartee to would-be dinner guests, such as the Book of Humor, Wit, and Wisdom, A Manual of Table Talk, published in 1887. And I couldn't find one specific author for this book. It might have been like a contribution of a bunch of different authors and humor writers. A sense of humor was also a highly sought-after trait among those looking for love. Nicholson tells us that those placing quote-unquote matrimonial advertisements, which look kind of like dating ads that appeared in the classified section of newspapers in more recent decades before the online dating revolution, if you will, frequently referred to themselves as comics or comedians looking for quote-unquote jolly partners. And it wasn't uncommon for young men looking to woo a romantic partner to claim that they'd written jokes for Punch, the weekly British satirical magazine that ran from 1841 to the 1990s, which I did an entire episode on last spring. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes in case you'd like to listen. The few who were lucky enough to pen jokes for Punch or one of its rivals, such as Fun, could earn quote-unquote princely incomes, according to Vasey, by writing as many as 100 jokes per day. And since we are talking about a period that has a reputation for being prim and proper, I think it's important to emphasize that certain types of humor were considered more acceptable than others. Nicholson says that most joke books of the period largely contained quote-unquote respectable humor, and that you were much more likely to hear risque jokes, such as those of a sexual nature or maybe those that referred to bodily functions in private. It also goes without saying that what might have been considered respectable during the Victorian era was often not 
respectful of those who weren't middle to upper class white people. While working on this episode, I randomly chose the year 1892 and looked through a few issues of Punch from that year and saw cartoons featuring Japanese, African, and Muslim stereotypes that made me cringe. Plus, regardless of whether something was considered offensive then or is considered offensive now, ideas of what's funny and what's not tend to change over time, due in part to things like changes in language and the meaning of words, as Arthur Russ points out in 19th century British and American humor. And even within an historical period, people aren't likely to see eye to eye on what's funny and what's not. Although Russ believes that humor was more similar on both sides of the Atlantic in the 19th century, he explains that contemporary American humor is largely geared toward providing quick laughs. And I think the action in general is more fast paced. Whereas Russ describes more recent British humor as having layers like those of an onion and is quote, deeper, often dry, sometimes dark, and usually quite subtle, end quote. Sometimes so much so that it can be missed. Looking at my own tastes in humor, I was exposed to Monty Python's Flying Circus by a friend in my senior year in high school, and that series, and Monty Python films like Life of Brian and The Meaning of Life, gave me a lifelong appreciation for British humor. And granted, a lot of the better-known Monty Python sketches, like the Ministry of Silly Walks, Spam, the Spanish Inquisition, and such, are laugh-out-loud funny. So maybe they're not the best example of the distinction that I'm trying to explain, but when it comes to American humor, the aforementioned Mrs. Maisel really resonated with me because I have a huge amount of respect for stand-up comedy and also had some exposure to Borscht-Belt-style humor growing up. Much of the dialogue and action on that show is very fast-paced, and the overall feel of the humor is very different from much of what you see on Monty Python, even though I think both are very intelligent and, of course, extremely funny. Although, based on what I've seen so far, much Victorian-era humor seems to have been largely neglected by historians. And I feel like whenever I read a 19th century writer in a college or grad school class who used humor, like Oscar Wilde in The Importance of Being Earnest, we focused more on the themes of the work than on the humor in class discussions. But I'm pleased to report that it's pretty easy to find examples of Victorian humor online, not only in punch archives and public domain copies of 19th century joke books, but also on sites like the VictorianLondon.org's Random Joke Generator. When I visited that site, this was the first joke that was generated for me. Quote, can you tell us the best way to make the hours go fast? Use the spur of the moment. End quote. I clicked on the image for another joke and got this one. Quote, why is a young man engaged to a young lady like a man sailing for a port in France? Because he is bound to have her. End quote. A piece on the Vintage Everyday site called 18th to 19th Century Jokes Most People Today Might Not Get 
acknowledges that many vintage jokes relied heavily on the context of the time, but includes a few that I think we actually can get and appreciate if we take the time to think about them, such as, quote, which word may be pronounced quicker by adding another syllable? Quick, end quote. And, quote, how do you get used to the waltz? Just remember, it's the way of the world, end quote. Russ explains that 19th century newspapers often, quote unquote, slipped in one or two line jokes at the bottom of articles, which is something that I've personally observed looking through old issues of Punch, or bundled them together on one page. However, I've also noticed that joke books of the time include numerous examples that consist of one or more paragraphs, and some are a page long or more. I chose three that are each about a paragraph long in the Book of Humor, Wit, and Wisdom, a manual of table talk, to give you quick examples of differences in tone. The first one, I think, has more of an instructive tone about it. Quote, Thoughts on Reading for general improvement, a man should read whatever his immediate inclination prompts him to. Though, to be sure, if a man has a science to learn, he must regularly and resolutely advance. What we read with inclination makes a stronger impression. If we read without inclination, half the mind is employed in fixing the attention, so there is but half to be employed on what we read. If a man begins to read in the middle of a book and feels an inclination to go on, let him not quit it to go to the beginning. He may perhaps not feel again the inclination. End quote. The second one is in story form and is about a topic that I covered on this show quite a while ago and am rather fond of as a topic of study. Phrenology, described by Wikipedia as, quote, a pseudoscience that involves the measurement of bumps on the skull to predict mental traits, end quote. So, when I saw it, I had to include it. Quote, Phrenology at Fault After Professor Porson's death, his head was dissected, when, to the confusion of craniologists and the consolation of blockheads, it was discovered that he had a skull of extraordinary thickness. Professor Gall, on being called upon to reconcile the intellectual powers and tenacious memory of Porson with a skull that would have suited a prize fighter, is said to have replied, How the ideas got into such a skull is their business, not mine. But when they were once in, they certainly could never get out again. End quote. And I like this third one because, despite the wartime context, the funny part, I think, is easily relatable and therefore timeless. Quote, A witty sentry. A lieutenant of the 10th United States Infantry recently met with a sad rebuff at Fort Kearney. The lieutenant was promenading in full uniform one day and approaching a volunteer on sentry who challenged him with, Halt! Who comes there? The lieutenant, with contempt in every lineament of his face, expressed his feeling with an indignant, Ass! The sentry's reply, apt and quick, came, 
advance, ass, and give the countersign, end quote. So, even though contexts have changed a great deal in the last century and a half, and some of what was considered funny back then may not be considered amusing today, and vice versa, I think you can see from these examples that a lot of people were telling a lot of different types of jokes back then. As a result, you might be asking what was up with Queen Victoria supposedly saying, we are not amused. Was she in cahoots with George Vasey, the guy who was writing about the quote-unquote injurious effects of laughter on infants or something like that? Well, actually, in Queen Bombshell, did Queen Victoria really say, we are not amused? Andy Wilson says that it's quote-unquote entirely possible that Victoria did not, in fact, utter this phrase that's been attributed to her for so long. In the first place, details about where the phrase came from vary. The diary of Victorian noblewoman Caroline Holland, for example, recounts the Queen saying this phrase in response to, quote, a story with a spice of scandal or impropriety, end quote, told by a dinner guest at Windsor Castle. But according to Wilson, other accounts have claimed that the risque subject matter actually could have come from a groom-in-waiting or during a theatrical performance. And according to one anecdote from Victoria's secretary, Arthur Helps, who's cited by Wilson, quote, members of the household as chatting and laughing when the queen, looking grimly at them, remarked, we are not amused, which must have had a cooling effect, end quote. However, in the words of the queen's granddaughter, Princess Alice, in a 1976 interview, quote, you know, I'm so disappointed. I asked her and she never said it, end quote. I second Princess Alice's sentiment. I too am disappointed that we might never learn the truth about where or why the phrase we are not amused came about. But I think it's important for us to reflect on the fact that we don't know for sure what its origins are. Because when a statement, often presented out of context, is famously attributed to a high-profile historical figure, it can give people an inaccurate impression of the time and people we're looking at, which can be a big problem in our age of social media, when thousands or even millions of people might watch a video or read a tweet with inaccurate information. I'm seeing parallels here to something Kaz Rowe discussed in their recent YouTube video on misinformation in historical TikTok videos, and I'll include a link in the show notes to that as well, because I highly recommend Kaz's channel if you're interested in history, and Kaz covers a lot of Victorian-era stuff. But in this particular video, Kaz referred to myths numerous TikTokers have talked about in videos without citing sources about the cleanliness or the lack thereof among 18th century French royals like King Louis XIV and said that they'd rather dislike them for the bad stuff that they did that we do know about rather than rumors that aren't backed up with evidence. And in a similar vein, I think there's more than enough hard evidence indicating that the Victorian era was not the happiest of times, what with lots of people dying from tuberculosis, cholera, and other diseases, and in war, very high child mortality rates, 
and widespread poverty and colonial oppression, just to give you a few examples. So I think it would be wrong to judge this time period over an inaccurate perception that people lacked a sense of humor when we have so many of these other real life realities that we know about. In addition, I think it's time that we look closer at the purposes that humor might have served during the Victorian era, as well as who was most likely to use it. And based on the racist stereotypes that I've seen in Punch, the negative ways in which it could be used as well. But now, I would love to know what you think and what makes you laugh, whether it's a certain comedian or series or type of comedy even. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message you can also follow me on twitter at twitter.com slash victorian variety one i usually keep the topic of upcoming episodes under wraps until the day i release them because that's just how i am but i do try to post interesting photos and cool book covers and links to articles that you might find interesting a few times a week if you would like to support the show financially, there are a few ways in which you can do that. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13, or leave a donation on my Linktree page, or if you're listening to this on the Good Pods app. I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. And finally, I would like to give a shout out to my listener, L.E. Gray, who's been saying wonderful things about my show on Twitter lately. I am truly grateful for all of your support, L.E., and it makes me incredibly happy to know that you enjoy the show and find the content engaging. Because I do this podcast myself, sometimes it's hard to determine whether something I find interesting is going to resonate or to get a better idea of what listeners would like to see more or less of. So being able to interact with listeners is so valuable to me. Really, I couldn't keep doing this without you. And thank all of you so much for listening and for all of your support of this show. I hope you've enjoyed this topic. It's one that I definitely think historians, as well as those with an interest in comedy in general, should look into further. Because for starters, I think it can help us better understand how comedy evolves over time. But now, I'm going to leave you with one more short piece from the book of Humor, Wit, and Wisdom, A Manual of Table Talk. And I chose this one for no other reason than that I think it's kind of got a timeless quality about it. I mean, come on, it's got a dog in it. began it. A dog was accidentally present during divine service in a Scotch kirk where the worthy minister was in the habit of speaking very loud in the sermon. And in fact, when he got warmed with his subject of shouting almost to the top of his voice. The dog, who in the early part had been very quiet, became quite excited as is not uncommon with some dogs when hearing a noise. 
and from whining and whining as the speaker's voice rose loud and strong, at last began to bark and howl. The minister, naturally much annoyed at the interruption, called upon the Bethel to put out the dog, and he at once expressed his readiness to obey the order, but could not resist the temptation to look up to the pulpit and to say very significantly, Aye, aye, sir. But indeed, it was your cell began it. <laughs>